This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Cunnybeer. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. So I am thrilled to welcome to the show my next guest, Dan Widmeyer. He is the CEO and founder of Bolt Threads. Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on your show, Rob. So what, what is Bolt Threads? So Bolt Threads is a materials innovation company with an idea to take something that's been around on this planet since before we as humans got here, the four billion years of life evolving crazy new features and functionality, and bring that to the consumer products around us to make a more uh, sustainable materials future uh, as the planet gets more crowded and a little bit hotter. So I've read a bit about your... Spider silk? Is it spider silk, spider-inspired silk? How, how does that work? So we, we do something very similar to what the biotech companies in pharmaceuticals for the last 30 years have done, where we use the tools of, of life, of biology, to, to, to make a product. And so we go and find the DNA from a spider. We actually don't even find spiders anymore. Once upon a time, we went and actually found real spiders out in the world or in our office. We take the DNA sequence from the spider that tells it the instructions for how to make silk. We put it into a, a little single-cell organism, a yeast, and we grow a big tank like making beer or wine and then purify the, the spider silk protein that those cells are programmed to make. And it's the same stuff the spider makes. It's just you've taken the whole spider out of the equation. And then we go take that material and turn it into uh, uh, fibers is probably we're best known for, but we do a lot of other things with it as well. Wow. That's that's unbelievable. It's it's really stunning that when you think of it, it sounds like biotech to a certain extent was the the process inspired by biotech, or did the intellectual property come from something it, like that? It is very much a biotech. Uh, it's the next step in biotech. You know, I was one of the first students. I have a PhD in chemistry and chemical biology right here in San Francisco at UCSF, and uh, I studied uh, biotech effectively for six seven, too long, as grad students do. And uh, that's really where the technology started. But it was this realization, there's this big change that's percolated through that tech area in the last 20 years. And the most, the, the part most people, most of your listeners are probably familiar with is when you look at something like DNA reading technology, um, sequencing, the cost of sequencing and the ability to sequence uh, uh, big pieces of DNA, like your whole genome, all three billion letters that uh, of information that tell you how to be you, um, that price has gone from you know a couple of billion dollars the first human genome we sequenced down to we can see line of sight to where a hundred dollar genome uh, could be in our future, and uh, that is a very good analogy for how all the analogous technologies that support that industry have decreased in cost. And a number of us about 10 years ago really started to look at this and say, maybe instead of just medical products and pharmaceuticals, we could do other things on this planet. Because biology seems to be a pretty powerful and ubiquitous technology when you look at uh, all the continents, all the oceans, living organisms found everywhere. Yeah, no, I think it's fascinating because whenever I've thought about DNA sequencing, I think about, oh, how do you keep people from getting sick or how do you cure cancer or how do you prevent birth defects or something like that as opposed to 
how do you build other materials that organisms build? So how did you have this initial insight? Was it over beers one night or how, how did the original inspiration for, hey, we're going to do something different with this than what people traditionally think about DNA? You know, it started, uh, as most things in graduate school start with, uh, probably over beers and saying, we have this, uh, for us, it was actually, for me specifically, it was, a, it was a very memorable moment where we said, we have this cool technology for how to um, engineer living organisms. How, how do you go change the, the, the DNA of a single cell organism and get it to do something new because of that? Uh, and we were very focused on kind of fundamental science at the time, and we, for the exact wrong reason, you should never do this in graduate school. We said, hey, let's add a, a cool feature to try and raise the uh, impact factor of the paper we publish. Um, that's, a, that's a really bad thing. You should never do it <laughs> because oftentimes you pick something really hard to work on like spider silk, and you spend the next four years uh, understanding the in intricacies of why that technology has been tried but not worked for a very long time. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, that, was the, that was where the idea started for us. And by the end of uh, graduate school, me and my two co-founders who had all worked on it in some way, shape, or form – uh, basically said, hey, we've built a lot of specialized knowledge. I think we could do this. Let's start a company instead of getting real jobs. So I have some questions around that, but if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm on the line right now with Dan Widmeyer. He's the CEO and founder of Bolt Threads. So coming back to starting the company, at what point between the idea and actually saying, okay, there's a business here and we want to go out and fundraise. What was the transition point or the milestone that you hit when you realized that you could build a company here? So it, that part was actually pretty clear from the beginning because of what you could read about what had come before. So the idea of making spider silk without spiders, and for, for people who maybe aren't aware, spider silk has been this fascinating uh, area of materials for probably going on close to 100 years now because because it's so great it's just a great material it's the it's the it's the spider-man comics right it's the it's the stronger than steel by weight it's seven times tougher than kevlar it's hypoallergenic it's got this weird blend of properties that we've never been able to make with petroleum polymers or chemical engineering and people have tried everyone from the big guys to the small guys uh between call it the late 70s and early 2000s and so uh, in graduate school, we looked around and said, hey, look, I think that it's not that there's a lack of uses or demand in a marketplace for this for a company. It's been a technological problem of being able to uh, recapitulate the properties and mass produce it at a reasonable cost. And, and that's, that's often why that piece on cost is often why uh, biotech lived in kind of human health for so long because it's a place where small volumes of product – uh, that cure a disease state, sell at a very high price, and you kind of make the economics of the business work uh, versus if you try and make uh, everyone's fabrics or leathers or uh, polymers, uh, it gets a little tougher. So coming back to fundraising, what was the original fundraising process like and who'd you go out and talk to and what were the surprises you hit along the way? Yeah, so this was back in 2009. Um, the fundraising environment was a little different than it, it is today. Uh, yeah, it was lots of changed right? in, in that time. Um, and, and you know, being a bunch of scientists, we actually the first the first money in was U.S. federal grant money. 
so we wrote scientific grants and essentially went out and tested our ideas where they send them out to expert peer reviewers and came back with these, you know, what we expected to be scathing reviews of our ideas. Uh, and we, we actually had a 100% hit rate on every grant we wrote for the first five or six. And that told us we were maybe on to something. And that comprised maybe a million dollars of non-dilutive capital coming into the business uh, over the first couple of years. And we ran very lean. I think for the first 18 months or so, it was me, one of my co-founders, 100-square-foot room and about 100 free-range spiders. Uh, not, not a really a cash flow-intensive operation. So when you say a hundred square foot room, where, where exactly was that with the free range spiders? So this is, uh, uh, if you've been to the UCSF campus here in San Francisco at Mission Bay, they have a startup incubator to help uh, technologies who, that, that go into uh, new startup companies commercialize and use some of the facilities there to kind of get that first step off the ground. So uh, if you go to that campus, the uh, second floor of Byers Hall has a small office somewhere in the windowless middle of the building that we occupied for uh, about two years and uh, had a bunch of free-range spiders making webs across the office every night uh, and us uh, <laughs> their genetics, Wait, their materials. When you, when you say a few spiders, how many are you talking about? About 100. And you, where would you get them? So, so there's a particular. Oh, you get so far into into the, the eccentricities of um, of some of the different types of spiders that we looked at over time. But there was a very large uh, genus and species of spider called Nephila clavipes. It's called the golden orb weaver, colloquially, uh, and you find it in subtropical regions. We had a somewhat crazy arachnologist we knew on the Gulf Coast who we would send a text message to, and then we would see the uh, FedEx account light up a couple days later and get a essentially a cooler box by FedEx full of spiders that are about the size of a teacup saucer um, that we would let loose in the office because it's easier to have them make webs and feed them that way than to uh, try and keep them in cages. That, that must have been interesting. Did you have to worry about customs at all or – well, it, this is all within the U.S., right? So you're in the Gulf. You're shipping things from Florida and Alabama and Mississippi, places like there, to California. So there's there's not so much a customs. FedEx That's right. Not, we still don't have customs between. Package, it probably would have been a rude awakening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So did the people in the incubator know that you were letting spiders loose in your office, or did you put special seals around the doors or anything? So it turns out the spiders, when you put them in a web, they if they're getting fed, they don't really leave. They don't move. Uh, it's the crickets you feed them that seem to crawl out into the neighboring offices. And we got scolded more than <laughs> <laughs> So how did you meet your founder? So I have two co-founders. Uh, one of them worked in the lab with me. Uh, it was a year behind me in graduate school. And we were working on how you would make the spider silk protein using biotechnology. And it just so happened there was one other person in the Bay Area working on spider silk uh, over at UC Berkeley as a student trying to make a microfluidic device to spin fibers. And so if you think about this, on one hand, you can make material but not make fibers. And on the other hand, you can make fibers but you need material. It was kind of a match made in heaven. And we probably met each other, oh, in the first three years of graduate school and then spent three years toiling away before we graduated and started the company. So you kind of knew of each other, and then you met, and then you started talking about it. So it sounds like it was a natural meeting of the minds to come together and then incrementally say, hey, let's build a business here. Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, the other option was to go and try to continue chasing down the science uh, in an academic setting. Uh, and I think our assessment was 
we really we're, we're part engineer at heart, part scientist, part engineer, and we want to make real things that, that show up in the world. And uh, this might be hard, this might require a lot of science, a lot of engineering, but you're better positioned to do that as a company than as an academic lab. Yeah, so speaking of that and bringing products to market, do you have products in market that you can talk about? We do. We've done uh, a number of things. So this started as a spider silk story, it's what we're best known for, but it was always a materials platform technology story. So uh, the silk spiders make looks a lot like the elastin that makes your skin uh, uh, a little bit stretchy or the, um, you know, looks a lot like a rubber that shows up in nature or a glue or lots and lots of different material properties. And so we've actually made a number of different materials and brought a few of them to market. A few of them we haven't announced yet. Um, but so we've made a series of drops, uh, commercial uh, consumer drops. So we've made a series of ties, hats, composite knife, uh, felt for a, for a chest. We actually launched a beauty product using the polymer, which has some really nice properties for efficacy there um, under a brand called 18B earlier this year. Uh, and then we also announced a product last year, a different material called Milo, which is a, a mycelium leather. This is the root structure of mushrooms that we grow on uh, sawdust or agricultural waste and then process it. And you get something that's a leather, but without a cow or an animal involved in the process. So when you look at a product like Gore-Tex that I suspect you hear about from different people, how would you compare what you're doing to what Gore-Tex did versus other people that have done cutting-edge materials? You know, it, we take a lot of inspiration from that business because they did something pretty incredible in bringing a material as a hero ingredient that differentiates a product and got the consumer to understand that it was there, you know? Kind of uh, like and, Intel inside for people that remember that. Exactly. I actually think Gore-Tex was there before Intel. So I, I, I would love to talk to one of the early Intel guys <laughs> to see if they inspiration from Gore-Tex. But you saw it also with like a, a, a Lycra from DuPont or a Velcro or a Coolmax or Vibram. You find many of these places that branded ingredient comes from. Uh, yeah, I guess you wouldn't use Jell-O, but it would be a similar concept. Yeah. Uh, uh, when, you, when you look at, um, uh, at technologically – Gore-Tex was a very specific chemical technology around one type of material. It's basically get rid of dirt and water uh, at a surface with this uh, EPTFE, which is the, the polymer they make. Um, what we do is basically can make any structural protein that you find anywhere on the planet. So we look at the world and say, hey, life is amazing. It's been here for like 4 billion years. It self-repairs, it grows, uh, it re replicates itself, and it creates new functionalities over time, which you don't find any other technology that we've ever uh, created. Maybe in the future AI will do this, but uh, the idea that evolution gives rise to new functionality through adapt, uh, uh, selection adaptation is pretty incredible. And so we use that whole treasure trove, and this is where that DNA reading comes back in with, with sequencing, and find interesting material space and then use the platform technology we built that started with spider silk to bring new material properties. So I, I would, if you compare us kind of uh, directly to a Gore-Tex, whereas they use chemical technology to make one thing, ours is a platform that can just keep on churning out uh, new materials in property space over time. 
So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Cunnybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm on the radio right now with Dan Widmeyer, who is the CEO and co-founder of Bolt Threads. So when you take a look at what you're building here with Bolt Threads and these different areas that you can go into, how do how do apparel manufacturers or I guess knife manufacturers or beauty product manufacturers find out about what you're doing, especially the things that you're developing that aren't even in. So when we, uh, when we look at these things in the world, um, we very early on said as a materials company, you could be everywhere around us, whether it's industrial products, military, aerospace, consumer. And we made a very conscious decision to limit our focus to consumer products uh, as a whole because it's a, it's a giant market. There's a lot of margin there. Uh, you could imagine relatively fast uh, uh, path to market from launching a pro- from inventing a product to launching it. Uh, it fit a lot of the boxes we wanted to check in order to get um, a business off the ground. It also, the companies that make uh, apparel usually also make footwear, usually also make accessories, sometimes also make beauty products. And, and we viewed that as our rubric for how to uh, find those places and um, uh, be able to introduce them to new materials, differentiate their product, allow them to have pricing power, and bring it to market. And so oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant because you could imagine where you have product managers within that organization, they see how somebody else is successful maybe in their apparel business, mm-hmm. using one of your materials. And they say, oh, I'd like to learn more about it. And then they find out how they could use it in a completely different way. Yeah, and it's, it's good for both, right? Because it becomes this outsource innovation that gives you something protectable, performance-oriented, and differentiated. And we look at it as we win when uh, our customers win on pricing power by having that differentiated offering. And then on the flip side, it, it becomes a more valuable relationship for both of us because you have multiple touch points in multiple parts of the business. Do those customers ask for some form of exclusivity? Do you need to do something like that? Well, of course they ask. <laughs> How do you navigate that? You know, uh, so you know, back up for one second. And if, I, if you look at the mathematics of how many different materials we can make from nature using our platform – we could make, using the same rough process, 10 to the 175 different materials. So that's more than there are subatomic particles in the known universe. So if you look at it, there's effectively an infinite pipe of new that we can direct at things. We've, because of that, we then look at uh, exclusivity as something that as long as it's not too onerous uh, and, and too long, we're, we're happy to to be that differentiator for people. We just don't want to block off, you know, I think someone very, very early on was like, oh, great, you can do great, uh, new consumer materials for consumer products. What if you give us all consumer and then go focus on aerospace and medicine? Yeah, you can't do that. Yeah. You can't do that. Yeah. yeah, but I can see what you're saying, where you can do it in a way that people get excited, you win as well, and you can just make sure that it comes to market by having some sort of minimums that people need to do so that it's actually out there as opposed to just being sat on. Yeah, make sure you're intelligent about fields of use and where this shows up in the world uh, and for what period of time. Because I think at the end of the day, no new innovation or new technology or feature set is expected to be the differentiator forever. Everyone expects it to be new for a while, and then whether it's competitors catch up or consumer tastes evolve, 
What you really want is the next new thing. And when people work with Bolt, that's that's what we want them to to expect, and that's what we want to deliver. Is so we're going to have to keep up with new. So we're going to have to wrap shortly. But one quick question I want to ask you is, how did you build a better tie? Because I think all the innovation in ties has been, is it wider? Is it narrow? Is it louder? Is it quieter? What is it that you did? So for us, so my, as a, as a uh, emerging entrepreneur, as a technology aficionado, my biggest challenge with technology companies uh, is when you hear lots of talking about what's going to happen and you never actually see any proof points that it's, that it's actually on its way. And when we bit off this project, we knew it was a lot of science and a lot of engineering to get where we want to go at, you know, global scale new materials. And so the decision was made uh, by me in, oh, I believe that was 20, late 2016, early 2017, that we're going to put something out there to show that, that we're making progress and that this is real and three-dimensional objects can go out in the world and be in the hands. Of, yeah, we've of got people. about 30 seconds here. Yeah. And what, what we did was we decided to make a product. We made it as a necktie uh, made out of spider silk to show the technology worked, could make a consumer product, and that real people could buy it, wear it, show it on, the, on social media with user-generated content. Well, great. Well, Dan, thanks for the stories. It's really an amazing story. And thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you very much, Rob, for having me on your show. And for listeners who would like to keep up with you and Bolt Threads, where should they go? Uh, you can check our website, boltthreads.com. Also, uh, our team on social media is very active and shares a lot of great content of things that we're working on. So you can follow us on Twitter, at Bolt Threads. Or, or on Instagram, also at Bolt Threads. And then our sub-brand, 18B, uh, if people want to check out the beauty offering. Great. Well, Dan, thanks again. No, thank you very much, Rob. So we need to take a short break. Just ahead, I'll speak with the chief operating officer at Fetch Robotics, a leading Silicon Valley robotics startup that specializes in autonomous mobile robots for warehouses, factories, and distribution centers. I'm Rob Conivere, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. We'll be right back. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 